As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be in the book of James in chapter 2. We'll start here in, in James chapter 2. And as always, before we read, would you please uh, pray with me? Our Lord God, we know that your love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So now, Spirit, would you work your love in us? Would you open our minds to see, to hear, and to believe? Guide us now, we pray, as we look to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take up this morning of these first uh, nine verses here in James chapter 2. So this is James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is the word of God. Now, where we ended... Last week, at the close of chapter 1, James there describes what he calls pure and undefiled religion. And by talking about religion there, he's not just talking about Christianity as the only true religion in comparison to, like, you know, Mormons or Buddhists or others, although it's true that the Christianity is the only true religion. He's talking there, though, about the way that a, that a Christian puts the faith into practice, the way that we become doers of the Word of God. So he doesn't give us a full, comprehensive picture of what pure religion looks like, but he does give us three particular markers as a sort of summary to show that the, our religion is pure. Those three markers, if you look back, are these. The summary is the bridled tongue, care for the needy, and keeping from worldliness. 
So having mentioned those three then at the end of the first chapter, James then spends the large part of the rest of his letter delving more into those three in particular. If you scan down the letter, you might be able to even see them if your Bible has little title summaries on them. So chapter three, you'll notice, um, focuses on bridling the tongue. Chapter 4, then, uh, looks a lot into keeping from worldliness, but here in chapter 2, where we are now, he focuses on the aspect of care for the needy. Now, care for the needy is an extremely broad topic. There's a thousand things that could be said about that, and we're not going to even touch on, 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 on most of them. James here specifically addresses, at least the way he starts this chapter, with one aspect of care for the needy, which is this, to focus on partiality. He talks here about partiality. So in the rest of our time, we really want to ask three questions about partiality. One, what is it? <laughs> Two, what accompanies it? And three, what remedies it? When we come to partiality, what is it? What accompanies it? And what remedies it? Let's look at the first of those questions. What is it? What is partiality? If you're reading from other translations, it might translate this Greek word differently. Uh, some use the word favoritism, which is a little easier on my ear. That's essentially the same meaning of a word. It's just a little more common word. Favoritism, or to be partial to. I'll use the word partiality, as strange as that word sounds for the rest of this time, just because my Bible uh, translates it into that English word. But in this context, partiality refers to this. This will be my working definition. Partiality is the treatment of one person as greater than another when they ought to be treated the same. The treatment of one person as greater than another when they ought to be treated the same. Now, I want to try to be clear about what this does not mean then. Let me make just a couple of points about this. This does not deny matters of affinity, that is, of natural liking. So let me describe what I mean. If you put in front of me a cherry pie and a pecan pie, I will always, without exception, choose the cherry pie. I have a natural liking for it, an affinity for it. I, could, I am, I suppose you could say in some sense, partial to it. Now, if I only had the pecan pie, of course, you better believe I'm going for it because, you know, pie is pie. But I have an affinity for cherry pie. And that sort of thing can be true of relationships as well. We may prefer, to some degree, the company of particular persons for various reasons. Often it's because we share something in common. So you might share, you know, maybe you like to play rummy. Is that still a thing? I don't know. Do people play rummy, bridge, whatever you play? And you get together with other people that like, like that too. Maybe, maybe you like to hunt. 
and you have an affinity with other hunters, or maybe you read sci-fi and like to read it and talk about it, I don't know. Uh, there, there may be some sort of shared background or hobby or goals, and it, it might even be hard to identify why, but with some people, you, you could say you just seem to click, even if you can't put a finger on it. We, we just click, and that's, that's okay. That does not mean there is partiality here. We know the scripture calls us to love everyone, to serve everyone, whether we have anything in common with them or not. So we can't just ignore people in our lives that might be hard or more difficult to get along with. But to have some affinity with some people over others, that's not the same thing as treating them as substantively greater than another person. So I want to be clear about that. It's not the same as affinity. Second, and lastly on this, on this note, this does not deny matters of authority. So partiality addresses circumstances in which you ought to treat people the same. But there are many times in which you should not treat people the same. So, for example, the scripture gives many commands to particularly honor particular persons. You're to give special honor to your parents, for example. Honor to governors, honor to elders of the church. It's the position that calls us to respond to them differently. So you can't just say, you know, if, if a child, a young child wants to stay up late and watch the rest of the movie, you know, mom gets to, big brother gets to, you can't just say, they're the favorite. This is not partiality to send them to bed anyway. Authority says you can do so. So neither of these issues, affinity or authority, the, neither of those are sin, but partiality where we, where we treat one person as greater than another when they ought to be treated the same, that partiality is sin in the sight of God. James gives us a little parable, I suppose we could call it, as an example here, where he describes the two men. You heard when I read the text earlier, so I won't dig too deep into it, but the two men's summary is, you know, one, one is wealthy, or at least has the appearance of wealth, and, and he's got gold and, and fine clothing, and, and another's got shabby clothing. And these two men are of the same position, at least they ought to be. Both of them are entering into the assembly, we're told, but they're, they, we, they seem to be guests to the assembly because they need to be sat at a particular place. The usher has to tell them where to sit. But even though they ought to be treated the same, they are treated differently here. One's given the good seat, which I don't know what that would be in our context. To sit up front is not the good seat, clearly. But wherever that is, one's given the good seat, and the other one's given, you know, either you have to stand or sit at my feet, which I guess would be, you know, right up here up front. Now, James here is not critiquing these two men for their wealth or lack of wealth. He's not critiquing them. He's critiquing the community, the people's response to them. And in verse 4, he describes it as you've made a distinction among yourselves that's not appropriate. 
You've become judges with evil thoughts. This is the epitome of partiality, of treating one greater than another when they ought to be the same. Now, it seems that James is not thinking of a particular example here. It's not like, remember the one time when the rich guy came in? He's giving us this parable, this uh, example that's exaggerated for effect so that we're clearly going to see what he means by this. But we know that partiality in practice usually isn't quite this blunt or clear where there's a finely dressed man and a shabby man who kind of walk in. Usually it's a lot more subtle and harder to spot. So in order to help us spot it better, we want to see what else the scripture has to say about partiality, especially to see the sorts of things that accompany it so it's easier for us to recognize when it might be happening. We're now to the second question. What accompanies partiality? That is, what things do we often see associated with it? Not every time, but often. Uh, there's more things uh, that are associated with it than we can address, but I'll briefly identify four things here that are associated, at least in the scripture, with partiality. The first that we see often accompany, accompanying partiality is this. The first is intimidation. Intimidation. Let me read a verse, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Now, this is in the context of a courtroom scenario, but there's some general application here. To be clear, this does not say that the person who's at uh, the receiving end of judgment is intentionally trying to intimidate. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. But whether he intends to intimidate or not, there's lots of things that might just be intimidating because of their context. And we need to be aware of that. So in James's context, when he's talking, most of his listeners are these scattered exiles in the diaspora, people who've been kind of kicked out for various reasons of their home and space. So they are likely to be poorer people. So you can imagine then that if a man enters into their assembly with a ring and robes, you can see how that impression of money and wealth and power could be intimidating. There's lots of things besides just rings that would be intimidating. Maybe a person's physical size or the way they use their voice or maybe their popularity could be intimidating or even just something about the way they carry themselves. You know how there are some people that you can't put a finger on them, but, but they just seem to carry an air of respect with them. These things may be good, it's not a bad thing to be these things, but we have to be careful that they do not produce in us partiality. Because we should not take these things to elevate one person as greater than another who does not have these characteristics. So that's one thing that may accompany partiality, intimidation. The second is this, bribery. Bribery. Let me read a verse for this one. Deuteronomy 16, 
verse uh, 19, the Lord says, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So while intimidation may or may not be intentional, bribery here definitely is intentional. This is a person who is trying to gain partial treatment by the bribery. You slip a person a 20, or maybe you know promise some sort of payback, whether it's explicit or not, of some sort of favor to be provided. Bribery boils down to treating someone better because they'll offer you something in return. And here, in Deuteronomy, it's called a perversion of justice. The reason why this is unjust is because when we involve bribery in these things, the person who loses out the most is the one who has the fewest bargaining chips. The poorest one has the most to lose in a bribery context. The rich man can offer you rings and power and prestige, but the poor man has nothing to sway you but the rags on his back. So we should be careful of bribery. That's the second. The third that may accompany partiality is flattery. Flattery. Job uh, chapter 32, single verse here, chapter 32, uh, verse 21, Job says, or Elihu says, I suppose, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. He says them both in the same breath, that partiality and flattery here are kind of named as, as neighbors. Now, flattery is different than just giving compliments or or giving praise. I might say, for example, I really love your scarf. You look really nice today. You did a really great job on that project. You're really smart. Each of those things would be good. <laughs> These are encouragements. We should be full of compliments and praise for each other. But flattery is giving praise or compliments in order to get something out of you. Flattery is not for you. If I'm the flatterer, it's not for you. It's for me. It's a manipulation in that sense. So you might try to get something tangible out of it. Hey, boss, you're the best boss so that I can get a promotion. But oftentimes, flattery happens to get something intangible. It's so that you'll like me. It's so that you'll think you need me. It's so that you'll affirm me. And flattery of this sort can be connected to partialism because the flatterer has to seek out people who can give him what he wants. That's the third associated with partiality. Fourth, finally, the fourth thing we see associated with partiality is prejudice. Prejudice. 
1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, single verse. Here's the words of Paul and the word of God on this. First uh, Timothy 5, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So to prejudge or to have prejudice is to make a decision before we have sufficient information to make that decision. That's what prejudice is. To make a decision or a judgment before we have sufficient information to make that judgment. So in the situation that James has given us here, there's these two men, the shabby and the rich, who are, who are strangers to the community, and, and we know nothing about them when they come in except how they look, their appearance, and, and what they're wearing. And just from how they look, we might make snap decisions about them, prejudgments about who works harder, who we want to be associated with, who is more respectable just because one looks richer. And James pushes on the people here. He says, do you, do you forget that normally the ones who oppress you are the rich ones? The ones who are dragging you into court, those are usually the rich ones. There's so much that we just don't know about these two men as they come in. The reality could be that the rich man may have stolen and lied and cheated to get every penny he has. And the poor man might be working three jobs just to make rent. We don't know their stories, and yet that does not stop us from giving prejudicial, partial treatment. We often don't know people's full stories when we prejudge them. You don't know the story of the homeless man sleeping on the park bench. You don't know the story of the young mom in front of you in the grocery line who is paying with her food with food stamps. You don't know the full story of the neighbor whose house is falling apart around him and who does not upkeep his yard. You don't know. So to make these sort of judgments of partiality based on these things is like opening a book somewhere in the middle and reading just a sentence or two or maybe even a whole chapter and then based on just that, with none of the backstory, knowing nothing that's come before, just based on that, closing the book and deciding whether it belongs on the top shelf or in the trash. How would you feel if someone did that to you? Do you feel the sting of this now? You know, partiality is, is sin. 
And like all sin, it is an offense to God. And that itself is is enough that it's an offense to God, but it's also just really, really damaging to people. So if we don't want this, we don't want partiality part of our own lives, our own thoughts, and our own community, then that leads us to the third and final question, which is, what's the remedy for this? What's the remedy for partiality? If we read through this, James doesn't only say, he partly says this, but he doesn't only say, cut it out. Just stop it. You know, sometimes we get that impression of the scripture that it's constantly just telling us to stop these things. He doesn't only give us that. He gives us a contrast, a counterpoint to partiality. Listen for it. You'll hear it, I'm sure, in verses 8 and 9. Let me read them together. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do you hear the contrast? Partiality at its root is a failure to love. Which means the remedy for partiality is love. Does that sound too simple? So plain that I almost missed it. James calls it here the royal law. This is what what Jesus called the second greatest commandment. They're quoting from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And you can tell from the context of the way it's used here that to love your neighbor is more than just to have good feelings about them or good thoughts about them. This is also involving our attitude toward a person, our treatment of them, how we interact with them. And it sounds good in theory, love your neighbor as yourself, but, but we know that in practice this is very difficult. You know, there's not just, you know, a little bottle of love, love potion that I drink and I love my neighbor now and don't have any partiality. So if the remedy to partiality is more love, then how do we increase our love? James doesn't tell us. At least not here. This is one of the things that we have to sift through the whole of Scripture about, a fuller picture of this. But James doesn't totally leave us hanging. He gives us a good sampling of this. If you look closely in the very first verse, he says this in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold to faith in Jesus. All of this is connected to the faith that we hold in Jesus. So if if we want to deepen our love, if you want to drown out your sins of partiality, we need to delve deeper into our love for Jesus. Not just our love for Jesus, 
Jesus' love. And the more that we learn about Jesus, the more that we know Jesus, the more that we look to Jesus, we'll see Jesus is never, ever driven by intimidation, by bribery, by flattery, or by prejudice. He is always, without exception, driven by love. He's driven by his love for his father, desire to submit to his father's will. And he's driven by love for us. That's what took him right to the nails of the cross to be a sacrifice for our sin. And you know, if, if, if anyone on the planet had the right to say, you sit here at my feet, it would be Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And yet we know that Jesus flipped that script and knelt and washed our feet instead. Now, we know Jesus is love, but here's the most important part about this. Jesus is not just an example of love for us. He doesn't just live out love and say, look, I showed you how, now get after it. Repeat what I've done. You know, I gave you an example. Copy it. He is that in some sense, but he is not just an example of love for us. Jesus is the very source of love in us. That is, his love is a wellspring of love in us. So if you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the scripture says of you that Christ is in you. That the love of Christ compels you, not your love, Christ's love is compelling you. This makes sense of the, uh, one of the famous line in scripture from 1 John chapter 4, we love because... Christ first loved us. That doesn't say Christ first loved us, now we're supposed to love. It's we love because Christ has already loved us. And his love is now working itself out in and through us. Which means that the more we learn to abide in the love of Jesus, the harder it becomes for us to be partial to anyone, to give special favor to the rich or the poor or otherwise. Because these are all now my neighbor, ones who are loved by God and ones whom Christ loves through me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am keenly aware of my own failures in these things. We, we know areas in which we have become judges with evil thoughts. But Lord, we are the work of your hands. Would you well up your love within us in a way that would overflow to all those around us? whether to princes or to paupers, 
Would you help us to be your hands and feet? Would you do this work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.